So as we take this up today, you had probably seen st stated up there that we're going to be looking at this, opening this up under three main things, and that is dedication, deceit, and death as these things unfold in this passage. Now, we remember from last week, and if not from last week, from previous readings of the book of Acts, that this comes on the heels of having spoken of how the people in the early church were just overflowing with a selfless generosity. Whenever there was a need that was among them, that need was met because of the generosity of the people. People saying to themselves, I have more than I need. They have less. Therefore, I'm going to reduce my abundance for the benefit of those who lack. We did note that, that last week that the scriptures were quite, quite clear that that did not permit individuals to just declare themselves the permanently needy. That they could not walk in idleness, they could not walk in laziness, and if they were to do that, the one who does not work should not eat. And so this wasn't, a, oh, the church simply had, I'm a, I'm a member, the church has to supply my needs. No, this isn't to be taken advantage of, but it showed you something of the remarkable spirit that was prevalent in the church that was putting others above themselves. Paul will later on speak of this principle, this mentality in Philippians chapter 2 when it, he tells us, really like the mind of Christ, to consider others as more important than ourselves as they considered first of all God more important than all else and everything belongs to them and themselves ultimately stewards of what God has provided them then they considered the needs of the others but what's remarkable even as I was thinking of that that was the prevailing thing in the early church but even that prevailing positive was soon perverted we're going to have here the wonderful example of Barnabas and the way he does this faithfully. But then right there in the earliest days, we have Ananias and Sapphira who don't show that selflessness, who don't show that dedication. Now, what's very interesting today is this morning in this morning's Marshall newspaper which most of you may not have read as yet. There's an article in there by a man named David Brooks, who's from the New York Times. And I was just stunned in reading it and how, as I'm reading it, it's the entire opposite of what God's word is teaching us. He says, what he says is interesting. And I want you to hear this because these are the things that are being spoken by the world to the world. And when they hear it, they say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I believe. This is how this article begins. You probably want to be a good person. But you may also be completely self-absorbed. So you're thinking, there is no way that I can be good if I am also a narcissist. Isn't being good all about caring for other people? Here he says, but how wrong you are. We live in a culture of selfism. A culture that puts tremendous emphasis on self, on self-care and self-display. And one of the things that we've discovered is that you can be a very good person while thinking only of yourself. I thought, what? You know, I would hope that even those of the world, when they would read this, they would say, this is madness. 
How can someone say this? He then strangely goes on to talk about uh, of people who have tried to live by standards of moral excellence or a standard of external moral excellence. And he says things like this. But what we've come to know by saying there are standards of moral excellence out there that we, we don't meet up to. He says what we've learned by, by knowing that is we know this is actually harmful. People shouldn't think about the fact that, that, that they don't meet external moral standards. In the first place, when we hold up external moral standards and moral excellence, they make us feel judged. They make people feel sad because you may not live up to the standard. It is a very cruel way to make people feel troubled by telling them there is an external moral standard that they don't meet up to. This is in today's newspaper. And there's much, much more of this, but I may end up burning it before I finish reading the whole article. But he, he, what, what, what's astounding is this. When, when the scripture says we live in a world that is going to uh, not only not hide their sin, but they're going to applaud their sin. They're going to flaunt their sin. They're going to have parades promoting pride in their sin. They're going to also then begin to encourage people, don't think of some external moral standard. Build your own internal moral code, he's saying. What feels good to you? And generally, what you got to learn to do, he says in there, if people start telling you uh, stories of sacrifice that men in history have done, maybe they'll say about the, the truthfulness of Abraham Lincoln or something uh, of Nelson Mandela, tell them, hey, that's not relevant to me, and that just makes me feel bad. Can you please talk about me? You know? And when people are talking about themselves in conversation, remind them you would rather hear about yourself. Like, what is going on that someone actually feels that comfortable to lay that out there? Well, I guess the reality is, here is a man who is absolutely being transparent with what he really thinks and what he really believes. And it's just nonsense. It's just absolute garbage. The scriptures encourage us to consider others as more important than ourselves. In other words, indeed, as we begin to look into this, it tells us initially here, it says, thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas. The first thing I want us to see here is an exemplary dedication. His name is Joseph, which is a, an exceedingly common name in that day and age. And so oftentimes among the common names, since they did not often carry the first and last names like we do, they would have to distinguish somebody by a trait, a characteristic. It could be physical. It could be work-related. Something that would distinguish him. And Joseph became known as Joseph Barnabas, or then only Barnabas, because of his character. Because of that distinctiveness. And what's interesting is, when, when you look at that, he's characterized as one who does not put himself first does not think of himself first Barnabas isn't the only one in scripture that's given multiple names is it as we look through the scriptures there's so many times we see names are changed Abram to Abraham whether instead of an exalted father he will be a father of a multitude or many nations we saw that there's the change from Sarai to Sarah 
There's a change from Jacob to Israel. And some of us know the details about that. There's the change from being more prominently called Saul. Which uh, would refer back to the original King Saul as one who is to be desired. To being called Paul. Which meant small or little. You know, I think there's a, a reason why maybe Paul made that his own nickname as he considered himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be named among them. He wasn't filled with a, with a pride and, and a, and a self-greatness. Uh, uh, he recognized. And so the encouraging thing here is they named Barnabas. They called Joseph Barnabas, which means our translations say at times son of encouragement. Consolation, comfort, even exhortation. He was a man who always had a word. A word of, a word of guidance, a word of encouragement. He, 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 he was constant in this. And we see this even throughout when he's in the ministry with Paul and traveling around. He would, it says that Barnabas exhorted them to remain steadfast in the faith. Just th this nature about him. He is someone. Now... What I want us to note this, it may be that Paul gave himself the nickname small and little that sounded so similar to his own name as an expression of self-recognition of how little he was and wanting to minimize himself and extol God. But most times we see the names were given by someone else. It might be God giving the name. It might be here the apostles giving the name. And I ask us just for a moment to muse over what name our brothers and sisters might give to us. If we were to do the same kind of thing and ascribe to one another names, rather than names, since for us generally names are meaningless, they're just what we call each other, but a little phrase, a little descriptive phrase, you know, it might be interesting to, to play a game of write down what you think is the simple pithy phrase that people would think best describes you and then ask everybody else to write down and, and compare the two. Is what you think they think of you the same thing that they actually think of you? Now, of course, note this, there is always going to possibly be that one person in the midst who has great enmity towards you and the name they would give you is not one you want. I get that. But nonetheless, those in, in, in a close-knit community, if they were to give you a small descriptive name, what do you think it would be? Would it be uh, daughter of discouragement? You know, son of discontent, you know, count of complaining. What, 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 you know, I don't know what it necessarily, but I would hope that there could be positive ones along the way too. But oftentimes I wonder, and when I see this, I think, wow, that when they thought of him, they thought his name doesn't work for him. It's not good enough. He is so characterized by this, we're going to call him son of encouragement. And he was one who lived as an example. So put that out there. And maybe you might want to do this. Ask those reasonably close to you. If you ask those far away, they, they don't really know what to say. So probably flattery will ensue. Uh, 
So ask those reasonably close to you, what do you think of me? And uh, what, what phrase would you? And, and if the phrase that seems to come back is not one that you would really want to cling to, pray for more grace. More grace to, to be the man or woman that you know is more pleasing in the sight of God. But, but you see this, um, this descriptive name is the first thing here. And then you see also, secondly, that he gives a donation that is most needed. Now, it's amazing how scholars get bogged down in all kinds of details. He's a Levite, and Levites weren't supposed to hold property, and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, uh, he's a Levite, but a native of Cyprus, which means he's been living in a different place, not one of the cities that were dedicated to the Levites. It wasn't among the general places that were ascribed to the tribe. So if he had family holdings in that place or received it as part of some sort of dowry it came with his wife, we don't know. Why is it we will get ourselves all worked up about things that aren't even what's the point of what's being taught? Get caught. Well, I don't even think he should. Of course he sold that property. He shouldn't have had it in the first place. He was a Levite. You've missed it. Because that's not the point here, is it? The point is, here is a man who had something in abundance. There was no compulsion. We learned from chapter 5. This was not a communal requirement. While it was yours... It was yours to do with as you pleased. And once you sold it, the money was yours to give a portion of it or to give all of it. It's entirely up to you. He sold it, dedicated all of that, and came and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, one of the things that is interesting and, and somewhat encouraging about that, he came and laid it at the apostles' feet. He didn't come and say, all right, now listen to me. This is to be used exclusively for the widows from the Hellenistic community. This is to be used exclusively for orphans five and under from Cambodia. It's like, what? <laughs> this is only for the building project. This is only for the VBS. This, does that happen? My God. It happens. What, what you love about this is he, 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 he lays it at the feet of the apostles. And, and by laying it at his feet, he's just basically surrendering it. Surrendering it to those who have responsibility. Basically, where most needed. Where most needed. Use, use wisdom to use this wherever's most needed. Because it's not about me. And it's not about making a show. Well, at least in his case it was not about making a show one of the things that um we see this this amazing uh, sacrificial principle one of the things that's fun to see is if you ever read and i encourage you to first chronicles 29 that's where david begins to say we're gonna gather up stuff for the temple anyone who wants to give willingly give whatever you want to give and what they gave was in ridiculous abundance. And he's just astounded at how much has come in. And remember, he does say, that's the passage where he says, Lord, of your own we have given to you. But also what's interesting in that passage, it says, they all rejoiced greatly in the Lord because they had given willingly. All right, wait a second. You had... You no longer have. 
because you gave it away. And you happy? What? Well, they, they understood, and, and I guess the reality is this. God moved them to give in a generous heart. They gave willingly. It wasn't, it wasn't with reserve. It wasn't with hesitation. It wasn't, uh, they gave with a desire to give to the Lord with awareness. It is for him. All that we have is from him. This is dedicated to a temple that will be for the glory of his name. And oh, should not that which is for the glory of his name be most glorious. That was even David's commitment. Remember, even as he talks to his son, this is not going to be an ordinary temple. For this is the temple to the living God. Its glory needs to exceed all the others. Now I say this. No matter how glorious they made that earthly temple. Was it good enough? There is nothing. Nothing that we know this side of glory. That is sufficiently glorious enough for God. You know, those things. Well it talks about how much gold there was there. Yeah you've read Revelation have you not? Gold streets. Now what do we make our streets of? Just asphalt. Is that valuable? No per square foot, per square mile. Is that expensive stuff? No, it's because it is low cost and in tremendous abundance that we lay our roads with that. The, the, the whole sense. And, and what catches my mind is sometimes people are reading, and we do read this in Revelation. It's got cornelian and jasper and sapphire and, and pearl gates made of a single pearl and, and, and streets of gold. And we're letting ourselves get enamored by the imaginary visualization of that but I think when you understand that that's the building materials they've lost their present value and the greatest value in the world that is to come is not going to be the beauty of that city that comes down out of heaven but is going to be what God Himself will dwell with men. God and the Lamb will be their eternal light in their midst. The reality is this. Well, you know, we may look at, at some sapphire compared to something else and say, Ah, this is nothing compared to this. I'm quite sure that when we see the glory of God. Now us being glorified that we can view it unabated and not die. Because to see God as man is to die. That's why every pre-appearance of God was, was, a, was a veiling of his glory. And even sometimes then it was too much. Even in a veiled glory, Moses would still come out before the people with his face radiating that glory that he had somehow soaked in and was reflecting from being in the presence of God. When we see God, I'm quite sure we're going to look at the walls and look at the streets and our eyes are not going to get fixed on the streets and the walls and the jewels and the pearls because there is a greater glory in all those things. It says this, uh, uh, I love the way that it says this in 2 Corinthians 8, reminding you of this. Paul speaks of those people in Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia, that in a severe test of affliction, they're a abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part 
I've always been amazed by the, the, the way that those words play out. Because I don't know if there's a sentence anywhere else where you're going to put those kinds of words together. Where you have severe affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, wealth of generosity. Wait a second. You're, 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 you seem to be speaking in opposites, but he's not. Because this is the grace of God that is among them. Uh, don't miss, and sometimes I think we get down this. We miss what it says in 8 verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Too, too often, we look at what the church in Macedonia was doing, and we think, we need to muster that kind of sacrificial giving. Right? Let's, let's give. Give till it hurts. Let's do it. So that we can be like Macedonia and meet up to that center. Well, don't miss this. Why, why were they able to have an abundance of joy, severe affliction, poverty, and generosity? How did those things coexist? Because of the grace of God given in those churches. Uh, it, it says... Um, it, I love the way that it says it at the end here. It, they, they had begged for the opportunity of participating. Verse 5 says, and not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What's the difference? It's not first for the, the mere value of the designated purpose. For the building fund or for the children's ministry. They gave themselves first to God. And when you, when you have by grace entirely yielded all that you are and all that you have to God, generosity actually flows pretty naturally because you realize, I have far more than I could ever earn. I have been granted by grace what I could never merit. And I have an, I have an eternal possession, an abiding one, far more valuable than all of these things. You know what? I can say this. If I have food and drink, I will be content with these things. What are these things of this world? Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The scriptures say that, right? But of course, our, our article writer was saying, you know, if you think something more will make you happy, go and get it. What? Now I want to move from this exemplary dedication where we see the descriptive name and we see the donation where most needed. I want to move to what, oh, the polar opposite and that is the extensive deceit. Now we come into Ananias and Sapphira and sometimes it, it sometimes when you look deeply at the words it's quite interesting because to our best understanding the name Ananias means that God has given graciously. And Ananias is going to be one who has, in his life, received from the gracious hand of God to some degree of abundance. How do we know that? Because he has extraneous property that he can sell, right? And yet in the midst of one, and this is, this is the tragedy when you see it, in the midst of the life of one who has received from the gracious hand of God... What is his spirit? What is his heart? Is it for God? 
Is it for the grace of God? Is it for the good of God's people and for the good of others? Or is his heart somewhere else? I mean, what we're going to see here is we, we're going to flow from deceit to death. In these two things. And, and there's a popular saying that exists uh, um, in the world. And they say, you know, two things in life are inevitable. Death and taxes. Have you heard that before? Well, it's not necessarily true. People have absconded to remote regions and not pay taxes. You know. Some will say that if you're rich enough and you got the right, find all the right loopholes, you can even avoid it and then make sure nobody sees your tax returns. But here, what I want us to see is this. Um, it's not death and taxes that are inevitable. You want to know what's inevitable in this world? The deceitfulness of the human heart and the death that comes from it. Those are the things that are inevitable. Sin and death are inevitable for every single person that is born into this world. Let the, let, let the world know that. It, it's very different than this fella who's under the impression, uh, David Brooks, who's under the impression that you can be both selfish and a good person. Because we'd ask, we'd, we'd even go further than that. Somebody who's generous, helpful, kind, is that a good person? What does Jesus say when they, when they came to him and said, good teacher? Now, realistically, when they said that to him, they were right. <laughs> but he wanted them to think twice about this. Why are you calling me good? For there is no one that is good but God. Isn't it right? Jesus was making it clear. I, I love the, the way that Jesus often even does that when he's talking about uh, giving uh, a father giving to his children. Which of you, when you ask the father for bread, he will give you a rock and so on and so forth. And then remember how Jesus then opens that up. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Your heavenly father. Hold on a second, Jesus. If, if you then who are what? Why, why, why'd you call us evil when you're acknowledging we're giving good things to our kids? We're trying to be good parents. We're doing. Why are you calling us evil? And what's the answer? Because you are. Because you are by nature sons of disobedience. By nature children of wrath. This is who you are. But for the grace of God. Now the sad thing here is when we look at, at what's unfolding in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. We see that there is, there is a great greed and a great deceit. We remember and we know this verse very well. Jeremiah 17 9 says what? The heart is deceitful above all things. And the ESV says and desperately sick. Who can know it? The old King James there says desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's really a big word there. Uh, uh, the, the word presses on and, and it, it can be used metaphorically of wickedness. The whole point that's really being pressed there is that it is utterly incurable. That's not good. The desperately sick that are referred to by this word in scriptures, what happened, this word is used to refer to what the scriptures call the 
child that was born from the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Which was a sweet way of saying Bathsheba, who David had that adulterous relationship with. The child became desperately sick. Now, what, what happened to that child? That desperately sick led to death. It was absolutely incurable. Who can know it? The, the whole point is this. We, even by our own nature, deceive ourselves. I think if anything, reading that article in the, uh, this morning in the newspaper, a fresh scream to me, do you see men's skill at self-deception? You know, he may be promoting selfishness. He has no idea what he's really doing is he's reveling and spiraling down and out of control in self-deception. And what he thinks is going to be a, a life well lived. It's not going to be so. But he's able to deceive himself and think his righteousness is good enough and think his way is sufficient. Further, the next verse, which we never go on to, I don't know why, Jeremiah 17, 9, is surprisingly followed by verse 10. It says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Yeah, your heart can deceive you. Was not the heart of Saul, the young man, deceived? Did he not think that all he was doing was for God as he fought against Christ? As he tried to wipe out that name and anybody who held to that name that was above every name? Did he not think 100% what I'm doing is pleasing to God? He did. Until he's on the road to Damascus. And he meets with a savior who says what? Who are you? Yeah, I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. And it's just suddenly. He by grace. Because of the divine revelation of God. Making known to him. Revealing to him something he did not know. He realized in this moment. Everything that he had been dedicating himself to do. Was against God. And not for God. But he thought he was serving God. Remember he says the same thing in Romans 10. Of, of the rest of his fellow Jews. I, I note that they have a zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. And we see this. Uh, he tests the heart and mind to give every man according to his deeds. According to the fruit of his deeds. In this, what we really begin to see unfold, and it's sort of uh, woven in a subtext in this passage, is that we have in, in, in this man, uh, Ananias, he, uh, there, there is some degree of a larcenous greed. Now, why do I call it, a, why, why am I saying it is a larcenous greed? Right? We get from the text of what's going on here that he had seemingly declared, I sold this land... And I give the proceeds to, to the Lord. Now, some would say and some speculate. Remember, whenever I say speculate, that means the next few things that followed are not sure. They're doubtful. Right? But some speculate that the way that it would often be done, and probably someone like Ananias would have done it, would have been as someone like 
Barnabas has come and laid that money. Here is some money I, that, that I, I got from selling a piece of property that I don't need. Use this as it's needed. Ananias is the kind of guy who sees it. Uh, I have a piece of property as well, and I dedicate that property to the Lord. I will sell it and give the proceeds. So make that, uh, make that big announcement. This is dedicated to the Lord. Well, but then when he sells it, gets himself a good price, seems to have gotten a good enough price where he thinks, you know what? I think I could give only this amount of it, and everybody will still think I gave it all. But if you are telling people that you're giving it all, and you're not, if you've declared that this is all the proceeds are for the Lord, and then you're not, what are you doing? Now, back in the Old Testament, dealing with uh, uh, this issue to an extent, the, the children of Israel were required to give their tithe. And they're told in Matthew, Malachi 3, verse 8, Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contribution. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food for my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The simple reality is this. Once, once it had been clear that this is dedicated to God, this belongs to God, you can't keep it back. Once something is a, a dedicated thing, it's given. But he played a game. There is greed. And by saying it's given and then keeping back a little that he had committed as given, he is in effect stealing from God. Not that you can actually steal from God, but that spirit is there. And not only that, we see that he's a lover of glory. Now, where do we get that? We can, in this context, we see that they had brought these things and, and the bringing them and laying them at the apostles' feet is, was generally something that's not necessarily be, being done in private. And so they wanted this glory. Maybe it was, and it seems like chronologically it's subsequent to Barnabas. Everybody has seen what Barnabas has done and what others are doing like this, and they're, they're speaking well of him. What a great man, Barnabas. What a faithful man. What a loving man. What a sacrificial man. Oh, they're talking about him and not me. I also want to be talked about. I also want to be praised. I also want to be considered noteworthy in people's minds. I also want this. And so they make their show and it does not work out well for them. One of the things that Jesus says in John 12 to uh, uh, the scriptures say regarding a group of Pharisees. It says that they would not identify themselves publicly with Christ. Because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Jesus says to a bunch of people in John 5 why they cannot be his disciples. Why they cannot be his followers. He says ha why they are not even candidates for faith, so to speak. It says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Again, Ananias, he, here he's, he's in this blessed community. But here's what's interesting. 
We note this, that as, as was read in the introduction to a service, um, sometimes we as believers are sent out and we serve like sheep in the midst of wolves, right? But then we're also warned, as, it's, as, Jesus, as Paul spoke to the elders in Ephesus, wolves will arrive from among your own number. Wolves aren't always outside. Sometimes the wolves are among us in sheep's clothing. I mean, again, we, we come to know this oftentimes in the context of church ministry, in the context of, of evangelistic ministry. How many are those that are professing Christians that yet do not know the grace of God in Christ Jesus? They think they are saved. Because of their culture, because of their background, because of some previous experience. But they know not the true repentance and faith that God brings of a new life being raised. Here, here again, Matthew says this. Uh, it, Jesus says this in Matthew 6. This was the pattern that took place among the Pharisees and even those in the temple in the days of Christ. It says this. Thus, Matthew 6, 2 and 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. I remember reading that years and years ago. and like, Who would do that? I mean, is that even an option? I, I am now approaching the box where we put our gifts in. Do, 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 do. Everyone's looking. Does that even seem like an option? I mean, to me, it's, it seems crazy, but Jesus is stating it as something that was happening in their day. But we remember the time that Jesus stood back and people were putting large sums in and a woman put in just those, the penny that she had to live on. And what did Jesus say to his disciples' confusion? She has put in more than all the rest. Why? They put in out of their abundance, but she put in out of all that she had to live on. The, 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 the funny thing about this is, even in, in our uh, way of rationalizing, and I want us to deal with this carefully, our way of rationalizing, we would look at this event and say, all right, he did hold back some, but he did give to the church. I mean, he didn't technically owe it. He didn't technically have to give. And so the the benefited from his gift so I mean shouldn't shouldn't they just be happy shouldn't they be happy that they got the money whether there was a lie or not whether there's deceit or not shouldn't they just be happy now in appearances who's gonna know this See, we don't know where this property was. We don't know if it's from a far off city. We don't know who he sold it to. We don't know who was involved in the transaction. He obviously believes that he can keep the entire thing secret. But I want us to note what it says in here and not miss this. It says in verse 4 and then in verse 5 it says, um, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? How could you do this sin in verse 5 and lie lie?" To God. Now we know this. Because we review this all the time. We consider. Uh, the fact that our sins. The greatest impact of all of our sins. Are that, that they are a defiance. Of the holiness. Of our God. 
Every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And then maybe secondarily against someone else. And, and, and I, I fear that even in the context of churches, we've, we've begun to logically elevate the sins that seemingly affect or offend others and lessen other ones. Well, as long as nobody knows this, we cannot play fast and light and loose with regard to sin. Every sin that is a sin is a sin against God. It is a lying to the Holy Spirit. And, and I guess what's even more ridiculous about this now, it's, it's frightening. Ananias and his wife indeed may not be saved. Now, why do I say this? It says Satan filled his heart. It's not too much different than, than Satan entered into Judas. Now, Satan can uh, uh, desire, he has demanded to sift you like wheat to all of the disciples, which would include uh, Peter when he would deny. But that would be through what? External temptations and accusations that, that would be difficult and he would fail. But that's, that's uh, uh, Satan attacking from the outside is a lot different than him entering into the heart. It says, and he lied to the spirit and you lied to God. Which I think, oh wow, it's one thing to lie to men. But why would you try to lie to God? I mean, you can fool people, can't you? But you can't fool God. And it may be the reality is this. They did not think God is real. This is not just some sort of religious community that gathers together under new distinctives. But the scriptures are, wanting, are indicating to us. No, we are gathered around by the grace of God because of the salvation is, that is in Christ to worship the true and living God who, again by the mention of the Holy Spirit, is present with us and within us. This is not a game. This is real. And they lied to him. Now, can you lie to God? I mean, he knows everything. What, what would be the point of lying? Well, I didn't do that. I didn't take that. I wasn't involved. In, no, you may have me confused with somebody else. I probably look similar to that guy. Will that ever work with God? No. Back in Joshua chapter 7, we have the sin of Achan. You remember that? Well, when they had gone into Jericho and they weren't supposed to touch or take anything, everything was to be dedicated to destruction, he took for himself what he found to be a beautiful cloak. I can't visualize what that would look like would be so beautiful I'd want it uh, nonetheless he saw a cloak and he wanted that apparently though he also saw silver looks pretty good too gonna take that saw a bar of gold I like that too so uh, you know he, he was playing it light the fact is he was greedy took it buried it under his tent nobody knows right wrong God always knows everything he shatters the mighty without investigation, it says in Job chapter 34. What God does is he has them all come. Have them all come tribe by tribe. Achan's tribe was chosen. Have them all come clan by clan. Family by family. Person by person. Till ultimately Achan... <laughs> and I'm thinking at some point there, his, his tribe is taken. Still a lot of people here, I think, man... There's no way they're going to guess it's me. <laughs> Uh-oh, his clan. Uh-oh, his family. 
uh, hands starting to sweat. And there's no way they're going to know it's me. Yeah, there's no way if it's men. But God is real. And he is nailed for what he had done. It was you. What did you do? And he acknowledged it. And he was stoned. Now I want us to, to, to see this. And understand it is just ridiculously foolish to lie to God. Psalm 90 verse 8 says this. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. <laughs> even, look, not only, even those things nobody else knows, he knows them. Even those things that we're okay with, he's not. <laughs> That we are self-justified. He's not. And it won't stand. Then thirdly. We draw our attention down to the ensuing death. As a result of this. What happened when Ananias was found out? Now he's not asked did you do it? Did you not do it? He's simply told you did this. He's not asked to give excuses or explanations. He's just dead. He just. The scripture says breathed his last. It's fun to look at commentaries and how men speculate. What I think happened is he went into a state of shock and, and died of... Why are you saying that? He breathed his last. You know, the, the mechanisms involved, if you want to play, whether he had a cardiac arrest, respiratory failure. What it, the guy died. However it was, God is not bound by specific means. And for us to know, well... It, so, so if I'm ever accused, I just got to be chill so that that's not the solution here. But what I want us to note is this. Um, we see in this, there's a priority of purity. This doesn't happen often in the church. When, the, when there was an individual in sin in the church of Corinth, it says this person purged the evil from among you. I have handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he may not learn not to do that. We remember, even in a moment, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together. What was taking place, it says in the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of them were taking and eating of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And some were becoming sick as a result of that. And others were dying. I think, you know, God is so merciful and so patient with us. And maybe because of that great patience with us, we don't take sin as seriously. It says fear came upon all them. Can you imagine that in the early church here where, where someone is acting in clear defiance and disobedience in the context of the church. There are, there are their, their life is taken by God. They're put out of the church. They get sick or again they die. Sin is something that's very very serious. And I think sometimes because of the kindness of God that we get away with it. And doesn't seem to be any consequences of significance. We don't take it seriously. I think the very thing we need to learn surely in this passage is. Purity. And genuine piety. Is important. We don't play games. We're not on show. What we do. Do it with sincerity. And then thirdly. I want us to note this. That there is a promise. Of punishment for sin. Sin brings death the wages of sin is death it is appointed for man once to die and after that the judgment remember adam sinned and in adam all men sinned condemnation and death passed upon all men so that all have sinned it is done 
The, the reality of this world is deceitfulness of sin followed by the proper punishment of death. And there is among men no escape for that and no answer to that. Except what do we know by the grace of God. God himself sent his own son in the form of a servant, in the form of man, in the form of sinful flesh. Who would what? He would defeat death by dying himself. He would defeat sin by taking our sin upon himself in his own body. And so he would grant in himself that we would have life. There's no other hope. There's no other way. And so when we, we really unpack these things in this passage, we see this. This passage unfolds for us. Um, first of all, the exemplary dedication of Joseph Barnabas. We see his descriptive name. And how significant that was in his sweet-spirited, exhorting, encouraging nature. And we see his generous donation. We see the extensive deceit of Ananias and Sapphira as they knew it. They communicated. They cooperated. They made a plan. They thought that they could deceive God. They, they acted out of their larcenous greed. They acted out of a, a love of glory. And they thought they could lie to God. But they could not. All sin is ultimately against God. And all sin ultimately brings death. Death passed upon all men. By the sin, by the trespasses of one. Death passed upon all men. But so by the obedience of one. There is life. There is salvation. There is deliverance. There is forgiveness. There is merit. For those of us who by the grace of God. Have life in Christ. We need not fear the second death. And not only do we not need fear the second death. We don't need to fear the first death. Those who believe in me. There is a sense in which, as Jesus says to Martha, they shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. Let me pray.